Welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Our team sifts through the literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and provides expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were written by the wonderful Bostupfield and Clay Smith. The first article is titled Accuracy of Physical Diagnosis and Imaging Findings for the Diagnosis of Elevated Intracranial Pressure out of the Journal for Academic Emergency Medicine. Can you tell at the bedside when a patient has increased ICP? Nah, neither can anyone else apparently. So, then, how do you decide when to call neurosurgery? This review aims to help you out with just that. This was a systematic review of 40 studies with just over 5,000 patients looking into the diagnostic accuracy of physical exam and imaging studies for the diagnosis of increased ICP compared against a gold standard of invasive ICP monitoring. All right, first things first, we start off with the physical exam. We have pupillary dilation, Glasma coma scale, a motor score of less than three, looking at posturing, and total GCS of less than or equal to eight were all poor discriminators for increased ICP. The best positive likelihood ratio among them coming in at only 2.0, and the best negative likelihood ratio at just 0.6. That's not hot. Next up are CT findings. Compression of the basal cisterns was 86% sensitive and 61% specific. Positive likelihood ratio at 2.2 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.23. Also on CT, if you see a midline shift over than 10 millimeters was 20.7% sensitive and 89% specific. Positive likelihood ratio of 1.92 and a negative likelihood ratio of 0.89. All right, boils down to this. If you see compression of the basal cisterns, you should be concerned. If midline shift accompanies it, then it's real. It's time to call neurosurgery. Caveats for this review were that most studies were retrospective, and only the midline shift data was based on high-quality evidence. In real life, we'll put it all together, be able to take the worrisome clinical exam, the CT findings, and look at their clinical course to arrive at a disposition. So in altered patients with known potential causes of edema, we may need to call neurosurgery and just let them decide whether or not to place invasive monitoring. In a spoonful, no physical exam findings were able to clearly discriminate increased ICP or not. On CT, you should be watching for compressed basal cisterns in midline shift more than 10 millimeters. But increased pressure can still be present with a normal CT. Next article, titled Emergency Providers' Familiarity with Firearms, a national survey from the Academic Journal of Emergency Medicine. Can you safely handle a gun? No, I'm serious. Guns. Love them or hate them. 20% of U.S. emergency departments have firearms or knives brought in on a daily or weekly basis. It is not at all unlikely that this could happen to you. An accidental firearm discharge could be deadly for you, your colleagues, or your patients. This study was a national survey of over 2,000 emergency medicine providers in the U.S. with a respectable 
49% response rate. About one-third were physicians, the remainder being nurse practitioners or physician's assistants. What they found were that 59% of respondents had encountered firearms in the ER at least once per year, and yet the majority at 54% were not comfortable handling a firearm if it were found with the patient's possessions. About 33 to 42% had been formally trained in firearm handling. In a spoonful, emergency providers regularly encounter guns in the ER, but over half did not feel comfortable handling them. You might hate guns, but or at least certainly if you happen to be hearing this from the United States, it's not unlikely that this will happen to you. Having a basic understanding of how to safely hold, handle, and disarm a gun would be a good idea. Next article is titled Empiric Anti-MRSA versus Standard Antibiotic Therapy and Risk of 30-Day Mortality in Patients Hospitalized for Pneumonia out of the JAMA. No treatment is without risk. That includes antibiotics which may result in kidney injury or secondary infections. Recent guidelines from the Infectious Diseases Society of America and the American Thoracic Society of Community-Acquired Pneumonia ditched healthcare-associated pneumonia as a thing, and they stated that broader-spectrum therapy did not improve outcomes. How about empiric anti-MRSA therapy? Are we helping or are we hurting? To help answer this, we have a retrospective multi-center study over six years across the Veterans Health Administration hospitals, including nearly 89,000 patients hospitalized for pneumonia. Patients who received empiric anti-MRSA antibiotics in addition to standard therapy, in this case, uh, beta-lactams with a macrolide, were propensity matched with those who did not. After adjustment, the primary outcome, which was risk of mortality, was found to be higher in those who received empiric therapy for MRSA, an adjusted risk ratio of 1.4. Even the subgroup of patients with risk factors for MRSA also had a higher mortality, with an adjusted risk ratio of 1.2. Secondary outcomes of kidney injury and secondary infections, such as with C. diff colitis or vancoresistant enterococcus, were also increased in the empiric therapy group. Lastly, there was also no benefit in anti-MRSA therapy in patients sick enough to have to be admitted to the ICU, an adjusted risk ratio of 1.3. We know that propensity matching isn't perfect. There's still a risk of confounding, especially in the case of sicker patients being more likely to get vancomycin and would also have a higher mortality. But maybe we should be thinking twice about starting empiric antibiotic therapy against MRSA. In a spoonful, empiric anti-MRSA antibiotics were not associated with improved mortality in hospitalized patients with pneumonia. The next article was titled, Reduction of Inappropriate Antibiotic Use and Improved Outcomes by Implementation of an Algorithm-Based Clinical Guideline for Non-Purulent Skin and Soft Tissue Infections. That's out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The Infectious Diseases Society of America recommends narrow-spectrum beta-lactam antibiotics for all non-purulent skin and soft tissue infections. Most of these infections, if no purulent drainage or abscess is present, are usually caused by streptococcus pyogenes. That's the same strep referred to as group A strep, and also the same one that causes strep throat. Even if it is staph aureus, if there's no pus, it's usually methicillin-sensitive staph and not MRSA. 
And yet these cases of non-purulent cellulitis are often being treated with the addition of vancomycin or by adding Bactrim to cephalexin. How might a treatment algorithm reduce overly broad antibiotics prescribing? This was a before and after study of nearly 1,400 patients from two emergency departments in 2017. On July 1st, they introduced a new treatment intervention targeting adherence to soft tissue infection prescribing guidelines. This significantly improved concordance with guidelines, raising them from 43% to 55% after intervention. And admissions also fell from 36% to 12%, with an adjusted decline of 26%. Secondary outcomes included fewer treatment failures and readmissions, both declining by about 45%. This is a big win. We're able to refine antibiotic prescriptions while improving clinical outcomes. But what caused this uproar? Clinicians were given a pocket card and were provided with their personal vancomycin prescribing metrics initially and a month later. In a spoonful, treating non-purulent cellulitis with narrow-spectrum antibiotics improves meaningful patient outcomes. So, the next time you're considering adding a little bit more to your prescription, we've got an algorithm for you. The last article for this week is Demystifying Lactate in the Emergency Department out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Don't we all kind of wish we really understood every single one of the biomarkers in our quiver of tests? Lactate is one such biomarker and is devilishly known to generate a few more questions than it does answers. This study is a larger view of the diagnostic and prognostic interpretation of lactate in the ER. Starting with the basics, lactate is an organic acid, classically thought of as the end product of anaerobic metabolism. But recent studies implicate it as a key player in energy use even in aerobic conditions. It's mostly metabolized by the liver, and the remaining 25% is handled by the kidneys. So let's warm up by dispelling a few myths you might have heard about lactate. Tourniquet use. Using a venous tourniquet does not significantly alter venous lactate. Arterial versus venous lactate. There are mild differences between the two during hyperlactatemia. Atrial and central blood samples represent lactate circulating systemically, whereas venous samples more reflect the local environment. The effect of lactated ringers on lactate. No published evidence shows that a bolus of lactated ringers will increase lactate compared to normal saline, though transient elevations may be observed. Good, now that that's done, let's take a look at what we can expect of lactate in some common conditions we see in the ER. Lactate in sepsis. The source and function of hyperlactatemia in sepsis is still honestly a big question mark. From current evidence, tissue hypoxia does not seem to completely explain it, but lactate still continues to serve as an important biomarker for risk stratification and as a predictor of mortality. Next is lactate in trauma, burns, and inhalation injuries. This is similar to sepsis, where lactate serves as a prognostic indicator for resuscitation, infectious complications, organ dysfunction, and again in mortality. Lactate in seizures. Here we see hyperlactatemia as a result of local muscle hypoxia. If seizure is the only cause, you should expect it to be cleared in about one to two hours. And this does not correlate with a clinical outcome. 
Lastly, if you're interested, there's also increases of lactate with certain toxins and medications. This was actually really well summarized by a table provided in the paper, and I would recommend you take a look at it for mechanisms and recommended therapies. In a spoonful, lactate has a diverse diagnostic utility in the ER. It's easiest to think of accumulation as a result of overproduction, impaired elimination, or both. And regardless of why, elevated lactate is associated with worse prognosis in many conditions and will continue to be a useful tool in the ER. That is it for the journal feed for this week. Links to all the articles summarized may be found at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get all of these daily spoon feeds in your email. Of course, Journal Feed is still a new podcast out there. So please share with your friends, leave a review. We'd appreciate it. We like to keep up with the latest research, and we'd like to help you do the same, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.